0: Welcome to another edition of Tim's Takeaways. Today, we're going to discuss some airway management. So, you know, when you really take a look at airway management, it is one of the most important things that we can do in caring for our patients. And it is also one of the top things that we look at in a way that we address life threats. And really, is the first component, oftentimes the first component, when it comes to the primary assessment with airway, breathing, and circulation. We're going to address several things with airway management. We're going to look at the ability to breathe, and we're going to assess how our patients are um, perfusing and how well they're able to take breaths in and out. We're also going to talk about the ability. Of our breathing to be disrupted and when that disruption occurs how oxygen delivery to the tissues in the cells is now going to be compromised and creates a big issue. As with most of the uh, Tim's takeaways that we've had I may refer you to another one and one of the areas I would like to refer you to is related to the anatomy of the respiratory system. If you want to take a look at the way that the anatomy is of the respiratory system, I encourage you to go to Tim's Takeaway for the Human Body. It's going to be in part one, part two, and that's going to be found at youtube.com slash timr2715. And there is going to be the video segment of this uh, review of the respiratory system. So it always is something to, to go back and take a look at Make sure you have a better understanding of what is happening with the anatomy of the human body as it pertains to the respiratory system. Now, I know that I had just said, hey, you know, go take a look at, at Tim's takeaway for the human body. And a lot of that is dealing with a little bit of the respiratory, um, deals with actually with the overview of all the human body. Um, but it also deals primarily with anatomy. But I want to review the physiology, basically the physiology of breathing and how that's going to work. Because even though we're talking about airway management, we're going to see that when we move into respiratory, that it is very important that you have a clear understanding of the way that the the breathing actually occurs inside the human body. Now, the respiratory and cardiovascular system are going to have to work together. They have to work to make sure there's a constant supply of oxygen and nutrients that are going to be delivered to all the cells that are within inside the body. In addition to delivering oxygen, we also have to have the ability to remove carbon dioxide. So this is the main purpose. This is what the job is of the way that we breathe. We're trying to bring in oxygen, we load it onto the red blood cells, It is then um, delivered through the body, and we then bring back the waste product, which is carbon dioxide, which then returns to the lungs, isn't exchanged, and then it is forced out of the body. So we do need the respiratory and the cardiovascular system to be working in unison. They have to work together. Now, we're gonna talk about three primary processes that we have to be able to identify and realize that these processes are separate, right? They work together, but there are three separate areas. There are ventilation, oxygenation, and respiration. So the first one we're gonna take a look at is ventilation. And ventilation is really just the physical act of bringing air into and out of the lungs. And this is what has to happen for the other two to occur oxygenation and respiration. So we have to have that moving air in and out of the lungs. So to do this we have two processes. One is inhalation, which is the active process, and the second one is going to be exhalation, which is more of a passive process. Okay, so let's take a look at the inhalation part. That inhalation as again, is that active process, which means that we have to use muscles to be able to breathe. And we use the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles to allow us to inhale. So, what happens is, is that these muscles contract and it allows air to enter the body and travel to the lungs. So, the lungs then are requiring the movement of the chest so it helps to allow these structures to expand and contract during inhalation and exhalation. Now keep in mind that the chest is a total pressure system. It requires that we have an understanding that the pressure system is going to allow air to come in and air to go out. At the same time we use what is referred to as partial pressure which is now going to be the amount of gas that is in the air or it's dissolved in a fluid, such as blood, right? So we look at oxygen. We also take a look at carbon dioxide. And those numbers are measured and those pressures are measured and referred back to us with numbers for the most part, right? So for an an example, oxygen, a partial, partial pressure of oxygen is about 104 millimeters of mercury. Carbon dioxide, on the other hand, is at about 40 millimeters of mercury. So your body works to allow these pressures to work in unison, and when they work in unison, that means that the pressures are going to equalize at some point whenever um, they are processing um, that we're going to be able to see diffusion of oxygen and carbon dioxide occur. Right? So this is what has to happen. The, the diffusion is going to be the exchange of gases, and this is to go into the cell, out of the cell, and this is why it is working in unison. Things are working together all the time. Now, inspiration brings in that oxygen to the alveoli. But now keep in mind that not all air that we breathe in reaches the alveoli, because The alveoli is where the gas exchange actually takes place. So in that process, we have what is known as dead space, which means that there's partial, uh, uh, not partial, there's portions of air that fail to reach the alveoli. So you think of the tubes that we bring in, right? So through the trachea, and we go down through the bronchi, and until we get to the alveoli, Those are dead areas. Those are dead spaces. So one area that we have to take a look at when we're talking about that dead space, right, is going back and taking a look at tidal volume. Because tidal volume is a measurement of the amount of air um, or the depth of breathing that we actually bring in. So each time that we breathe in, we are pulling in about 500 milliliters of air. So how much is that? It's probably about the size of a bottle of water, right? So this is how much air that you bring in each time you breathe. Now keep in mind that, as I said, with dead space, only a portion of that inspired air or the air that you bring in actually reaches the alveoli. Now, of course, what happens later? Well, you exhale. And we had said about exhaling earlier um, this is more of a passive process. It really doesn't require any type of muscle effort on our part. So it's an effortless portion, something that we can think about a little bit later on because this is really going to help us when we deal with some patient assessment, right? So what happens is that the diaphragm and those intercostal muscles now relax. And as a result of that, it decreases the size Of the thorax and the smaller thorax now compresses that air into the lungs and makes it in goes into a smaller space right so that means that inside the chest there is a higher pressure than there is in the outside air so this means that the air therefore is then pushed back through the trachea and it goes to the outside air right so again it's back to that whole pressure system so air can enter and leave the lungs each time as it goes through the trachea so this is why it becomes important for us to make sure that we are clearing out any type of body uh, fluid that may be in there um, so that we can assure that there's a better exchange of gas. Now ventilation um, and the way that it's going to be regulated actually has a whole bunch of receptors and feedback loops or feedback sensors that um, sense changes in the gas concentration in the body and usually this is in the fluid that is in the body right so remember we said earlier that the cardiovascular and the respiratory system have to work together so one way that we transport that oxygen is through this circulatory system and therefore that's where we are now going to identify that the respiratory center that's in the brain is actually helping to adjust the rate and depth of ventilation. So this is why the body is constantly checking on this because, you know, we always need to have a constant supply of oxygen and the demand is going to fluctuate. You know, in times of stress, you're gonna to need to have more oxygen. In times of rest, you're not gonna need as much. But if we have a failure to meet the need, this may result in things such as hypoxia, where the tissues in the cells really don't get enough oxygen and if we don't correct this then patients have a tendency to die and that's just quite frankly not very good right so this now leads us into oxygenation right so we talked about ventilation and you have to have ventilation to enable us to have oxygenation So oxygenation is going to be the process of loading oxygen molecules onto the hemoglobin that's in the bloodstream, right? So we also recognize that hemoglobin is located where? There you go, right inside the red blood cell. So this is also what we need to have for internal respiration. So internal respiration, remember that there's going to be two parts of respiration. There's going to be the internal and external respiration. And the internal respiration is where ventilation is, at, I'm sorry, oxygenation is actually going to occur at the, um, um, yeah, sorry, the internal respiration is actually going to occur at the cellular level where the external respiration is going to occur at the alveolar level, right? So it is necessary for us to make sure that oxygen is there. But oxygenation doesn't guarantee that this stuff is going to occur because if there's oxygen levels in the breathing air that maybe don't have high enough levels this could be things such as in combined space or you're talking maybe inside of a smoky building where oxygen levels are very low that can create a problem other things that you may want to take a look at now is going into the third area which is respiration and we just talked a little bit about that earlier about how oxygenation affects that. But here respiration is that actual exchange between oxygen and carbon dioxide and this occurs at the alveolar level and again at the tissue level. So this is how we end up with things such as cellular respiration which is the internal respiration and external respiration which is pulmonary respiration which is where we're now going to exchange between the alveoli and the, the uh, red blood cells, right? So this is allowing more fresh good air to come into the bloodstream. Oh by the way, how do we keep the alveoli open? You know we don't want um, those alveoli to collapse. So we have a chemical that is known as surfactin, and surfactin is actually something that helps to keep the alveoli open and um, allows them to expand, and it makes it easier for us to actually exchange gases. Now I mentioned a little bit ago about the difference between internal and external, external respiration. But you know with internal respiration, this again is that oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange, this is where things go between the systemic circulation, again, the circulatory system at this point, of the system and the cells of the body, right? So we're not dealing with the pulmonary system right now. We're dealing with the systemic circulation. So oxygen in this point goes from the blood and it goes into the capillaries. So it goes from the blood through the capillaries and then into the tissue cells itself. Carbon dioxide and other wastes are now going to be taken from the capillaries and are going to be pushed back into the venous system at this point, and they go back to the lungs where everything is exchanged. So if there's adequate oxygen, cells actually convert the glucose that we bring in every day, right? So the food that you bring in, glucose is sugar, you bring in that sugar. And it is being converted into energy through a process that we mentioned earlier in Tim's takeaway. I think it was the final part of the human airway, or I'm sorry, of the human body. Just thinking off the top of my head, I didn't research that to go back and take a look at it. But uh, go back and review that, but I'm pretty sure that's where it was. And we had talked about um, aerobic metabolism. And again, this is what you look at for... Um, glucose, and oxygen working together. Because if you don't have adequate oxygenation, um, then anaerobic metabolism takes place, and therefore the body doesn't have the ability to meet the metabolic needs of the cell. So we now want to take a look at the pathophysiology of respiration. Okay, When we look at the pathophysiology of respiration, we have to make sure that we look and account for the nervous system itself. So with the nervous system, there are chemoreceptors that we kind of mentioned earlier that are monitoring the gases that are inside the blood. And it's monitoring the levels of oxygen, carbon dioxide. And it's also looking at, and probably don't talk a whole lot about this in the EMT class, which is hydrogen ions. And hydrogen ions actually affect the pH or the acid base of the body. And we also then look at the pH of the cerebral spinal fluid. Remember that this is what is bathing the spinal cord as well as the brain, um, and actually acts almost like a cushion, right? So this is a way in which there's a lot of feedback that is then given to the respiratory centers. Ventilation and perfusion. Right, so ventilation and blood flow or airflow and blood flow need to occur at the same time at the same place. So, when they meet each other, this is where that exchange is to occur. Right, this is where that internal external um, respiration occurs. Now, the problem is that we must be able to do this and make the match. So, this is called ventilation perfusion match. Or ventilation perfusion ratio. When they don't match we call this a ventilation perfusion mismatch. So this is just simply stating that when ventilation and circulation don't meet at the same time. So as a result of that perfusion becomes a little bit of a problem and blood may actually get there and it does not exchange gases because there's nothing there so as a result this usually means that there's some type of lack of oxygen that doesn't get through into the membrane and as a result oxygen is not able to get through that membrane as well and it recirculates which then can lead to um, a lot of issues so they can become hypoxic um, and if we talk about a patient becoming hypoxemic, or hypoxemia, I should say, the patient becomes, goes through severe hypoxemia, here we're talking that the individual has a lack of oxygen. So for whatever reason, we may have had a ventilation perfusion mismatch. So what are some things that really, you know, if you're thinking about this, you're like, okay, Tim, tell me what it is that you're talking about here. I need an idea. So a couple things. There's, let's, let's take a look at two areas, right? So we can track them down. Intrinsic. Intrinsic factors are meaning, means the things that are occurring inside the body, like what happened inside the body, such as infection. You know, we can have um, sepsis or we can have a, a type of infection that occurs. And as a result, ventilation and perfusion or the airflow and the blood flow don't meet at the same time. Allergic reactions, the same type of deal. And what about patients who may be unresponsive? And particularly if the most common cause of airway obstruction is the tongue, then we're starting to talk about these problems again. That we need to open up that airway um, and help with the ventilation, trying to help affect that pulmonary ventilation. Now, extrinsic factors are going to be those that occur from somewhere outside the body. And two of the most common are going to be trauma and foreign body airway obstruction. Now, there may also be factors that affect respiration. So, issues that affect respiration include... Um, changes in the atmospheric pressure and the partial pressure of oxygen that actually occurs inside of the envi- or outside in the environment, right? So, internal factors for these respiration issues are going to be conditions that reduce the surface area for gas exchange. So one of those then, the most common is going to be such things as COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which I think we're going to talk more about when we get into the respiratory emergency area, not just airway, but respiratory emergencies. Um, This may also be things such as pulmonary edema and pneumonia. Most of you have probably heard of those things um, and you may even know what they are, but we're going to go into more depth with those a little bit later on. Now, if something is occurring with the circulation, right, circulatory compromise, this is where there's going to be some type of obstruction of blood flow. And this may be to individual cells and tissues, but typically some of the emergencies that we're talking about with these issues are going to be things such as pulmonary embolism, or maybe here we're talking more trauma things such as pneumothoraxes. Um, We're talking about Um, sucking chest wounds. We're talking about a hemothorax and a hemoneumothorax. So at this point, if you're listening to this and you're like, whoa, man, you're like blowing my mind with all these big words, stop, rewind, listen to those words again, and now go look them up, right? So this is the way we're going to learn these words and learn what they mean. Um, And particularly when you look at things such as hemothorax and hemoneumothorax, sound really big words but when you break them down they actually make things a whole lot simpler they're very simple once we start getting used to it it's always that hard part of getting to that point right so um, other things that may cause some circulatory compromise include some blood loss maybe anemia so they don't have a whole lot of blood red blood cells or iron as you're going to hear people talk about um, we could be dealing with hypovolemic shock, where there is a decrease in uh, uh, blood volume. Vasodilatory or vasodilatory shock—I get in trouble every time I say that. Vasodilatory shock, um, which is going to be an increase in the of diameter of the blood vessels. So, as a result of that, it causes the patient's blood pressure to decrease. Okay. So I think at this point, we're going to probably take a break. We're going to uh, end this part of airway. And when we come back with another part two version of Tim's Takeaway, we'll start going into assessment and some treatment. Okay, we'll see you in a bit.